Where did you put my wife? She's dead, sir. They took her to the morgue. The morgue? She'll be furious. It's the best forgotten Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time sexual Tyrannosaurus. You've got it, it's the one and only Andrew Phillips. Rawr. (laughs) That was really camp. (laughs) And today we're taking a look at Robert Zemeckis' Death Becomes Her. Will we grant the film the elixir of eternal life or push it down the stairs? That and more to come, but first, roll the trailer. Don't you know? It's worth every treasure on earth to be young at heart. Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. Is that someone? It's Madeline Ashton. Oh, she was a big star in the 60s. I thought she was dead. Oh, madam, you look younger every day. Thank you, Rose. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before. Mad Hill! Are about to go... <laughs> Too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. No warning. Now a warning? Siempre viva! Live forever! Ernest, I'm in the morgue. They think I'm dead. You are. But you're not. Are you telling me it doesn't hurt when I do this? It doesn't hurt. She's dead! She's dead, Ernest. Now he's dead. He's dead? Ernest is dead? Everybody's dead! You pushed me down the stairs. I'm so sweaty. I don't think it's sweat, honey. I think you're defrosting. Universal Pictures presents Meryl Streep Bruce Willis It's a miracle! And Goldie Hawn Look at me! I'm soaking wet! Death becomes her I just have to make a telephone call Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn and the late Bruce Willis, God rest his soul, star in this film of Murder Most Foul and Surgery Most Plastic. Meryl Streep plays Madeline Ashton, an ageing and struggling actress stuck in a loveless marriage with Ernest Menville, a washed-up surgeon turned mortician. When Ernest's ex-fiance returns to their lives looking like a vision of youthful beauty, Madeline drinks a mysterious elixir that grants eternal life and beauty to all who take it, but at a cost. Domestic violence, gory bloodshed, and horrific murder following this PG-rated, family-friendly comedy. So, Andy, you've got to ask, as I always do, straight up front, is Death Becomes Her a film that you're familiar with? No. I saw it on the telly about two weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) I saw the last half an hour. And uh, I've always been aware of it. And I was always aware of the effects and how they achieved them. And it was one of those films where it's in my memory as being... That film with that cool poster in the yes, video shop. Yeah, it's a great poster. The, uh, yeah, the one where the 
candlesticks going through a hole in the stomach. Curiously, in that poster, Mel Streep's actually wearing the dress that Goldie Hawn wears in the film. Yeah, that confused me because I was watching the film thinking, when are they going to get into those dresses? Yeah, and it doesn't and actually it's the other happen. way around. Yeah. But even at the time when I was little and the film poster was in the video shop, I always thought, oh, this is not a film that's for me just yet. This doesn't look like a family film. It looks like a little bit older. But no, that's not what this film was made out to be. It's a full-on PG. Yeah, it's a PG-rated film, and I really have no idea how they managed to achieve that, considering just how much gore and bloodshed there is in the film. Yeah, I'm sure this is definitely on the coattails of the Adams family. It's that early 90s kind of dark fantasy era of yeah. family-friendly films. When family films were macabre. Yes, yeah, yeah. Every, everybody was interested in death yeah, during you had, this time for um, some reason. Yeah, you got your Edward Scissorhands as well in oh, that of course, era. Yeah. Yeah, it was very much dominated by Adam's family and Tim Burton. And Disney had just been through its dark period as well with The Return to Oz as one film. Something Wicked This Way comes, another. Yeah. It's strange that family films went through this really dark period during the 80s and early 90s. Need to bring those back. Yeah. Those good old days. I've said this before, but it's those films that scared the bejesus out of kids. They're the films that they're going to hold on to throughout their entire lives. Yeah, yeah, especially this film. Be careful on the stairs, kids. Be careful on the stairs. <laughs> See, I did see this film when I was a kid, so I've always been aware of it, and I grew up with it, and when I was a kid, I thought it was a classic, and um, you'll get to know exactly what I think of the film as we go on, but I knew I was watching something that was a big deal at the time, especially because the special effects were made out to be such a massive deal, and I remember there being making of documentaries yeah, on me television me and too. stuff like that, and it was everywhere, and then it was nowhere. I was saying this to you yesterday. It had completely gone under the radar for me that this was a Robert Zemeckis film. Yeah, and to look back at Robert Zemeckis' career and how it fits into his filmography, it's actually wedged in between Back to the Future Part 3, this is the first film he did afterwards, mm. and also Forrest Gump, Yeah, which are both tonally completely different films. Yeah, and they're still beloved to this day. Yeah, and yet Death Becomes Her just goes unnoticed. Mm. Especially given the cast that it has as well. With the Meryl Streep and your Bruce Willis. It's a funny one just to... And Goldie Hawn. I yeah. mean, these are actors as well that were in their prime at the time. Robert Zemeckis' career has taken a complete about turn of recent years after his 10-year uh, affair with motion capture. <laughs> yes, and he has always been interested in special effects. And yeah. his films have always pioneered special effects in some way. So he's always been set on that trajectory towards motion capture it's just a shame that it lasted as long as it did and we've been deprived of so many potentially great robert zemeckis films yeah and only now he's getting back to the character dramas that we really want to see from him yeah and he's always been interested in satire as well yes so that's something that strongly comes through on death becomes her is that whole lampooning of the Beverly Hills life. Yeah, that's it. It's a Hollywood film that is absolutely scathing towards Hollywood vanity. Mm. It's really good to see these actresses like Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep really play up to that. Mm. So Robert Zemeckis is a director that we're obviously going to talk a lot about as we get into the yeah. film. Um, so I'm going to save a few things back and a couple of questions that I'm going to ask you for later on in the episode. So I guess what's left for us to do now is really get into what Death Becomes Her is about. I think we should begin with some nice Bernard Herman-esque music. Yeah, it's got a nice little callback to Hitchcock straight from the beginning. Yeah. It's got almost like psycho strings going yeah. on. There's two or three prologues that act as the setup to the situation we eventually land on. Yeah, it's quite choppy in the beginning before the film actually settles. So the first section of this is we open in 1978 on Broadway 
where we see Meryl Streep's character starring in a musical. I was wondering if it was something that was an acclaimed drama that they've completely butchered into a musical. Well, it is, yeah. It's um, a musical version of Sweet Bird of Youth by Tennessee Williams. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it ties into the themes because Sweet Bird of Youth is about a character that pines to be young again. Okay. And it also ties in with the kitsch, tacky nature of what she's involved in and that she's a fading star and no one's bothering with her anymore. It is really an awful, awful song to open with. Yeah. <laughs> I do love it when it goes into the disco part. The disco bit really where you go, ooh, ooh, is my favourite part. <laughs> I just love the fact that... It's so cheap. And also the fact that people are just liberally getting up and leaving. <laughs> there is one person who's enjoying this show. Yes, there is. Which is the late Bruce Willis. The late Bruce Willis, God rest his soul. Uh, what happened to that Bruce Willis? He died. Yeah. He's not about anymore. Yeah. And he's been replaced by a complete and utter twat. Voodoo magic brought yeah. him back. <laughs> <laughs> you can come back to life, but you have to pay the price. <laughs> it will come back as a complete and utter asshole. And you'll be attached to another guy. His name will be Skip Woods. <laughs> oh, how cruel. How cr- I wonder if he sold his soul and this is his payback. Maybe. Is Skip Woods the devil? Oh, maybe. That could be. In much happier times, he's playing this character. Yes. Yeah, this is back when Bruce Willis used to try. And boy, is he trying. Yes. It's a great performance. Yeah, I was watching it last night with my girlfriend, and the first thing that she said when Bruce Willis popped on the screen, she was just like, this guy looks like a serial killer. He does. It's like He looks exact- like Dennis Nielsen. Yeah, he really does. It's the exact kind of character that I normally look for in quiz shows. Me and my wife play a game where we try and spot the serial killer on many quiz shows. <laughs> So, who out of the contestants could be the serial killer? And they normally look like Bruce Willis does in this film. Have you been proved right on any occasion? I don't know. Mm, interesting. Nobody's lived to tell. He's watching in the audience with Goldie Horn, who's his wife-to-be. And she's looking very nervous indeed. Yeah, because she's run into this Madeline before. They used to be school friends, and she's stolen many men from her It seems the past. that's what she lives to do. Mm. She just lives to steal from Helen. And it turns out that Helen has brought Ernest, who's Bruce Willis's character, she's brought him to this show as a test. Yeah, it's to see if he can withstand her allure. And this is the thing that I really love about the film, in that it's so economical in how it moves the story forward. There's nothing wasted in this film at all. So as soon as she alludes to this being a test and that she's testing him, we immediately cut to their wedding. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. really it's a really good comedy cut. It's a great line. It's one of those set up punchline kind of jokes where we get Bruce Willis talking to his soon to be wife saying, I will never I'm sorry. not interested yeah, in Madeline. That's yeah, basically exactly. what he's saying is. he's not interested in her whatsoever and then we smash cut to him getting married to Madeline. It's obvious that it's been made by a proper filmmaker because a lot of this stuff that we're seeing is all done visually. Yes. There's very little dialogue in these opening sections. Helen comes in down from the stairs. She's obviously been watching it up in the in the viewing gallery. And she's holding her um, handkerchief and she's squeezing so hard that her hands are bleeding. And you can immediately tell that she's become incredibly unhinged. And the thing that I really like about this opening, although I called it choppy before, and it it is quite choppy, it does zip about. It's that Robert Zemeckis remembers to make it funny and to make it entertaining. We've seen films that try to do this, like The Phantom, and completely fail because it's just pure information Mm. and no character. And no humanity in there, no humour. 
and it's just pure exposition. Yeah. With this, I love that it's got the exposition there. It sets up the characters in a very economical sense, like you say. But it's still very involving. And they actually have fun with the choppiness. They kind of know that it's choppy. Yes. And they embrace it. Especially with the, those jump cuts. Yeah, and the, ta- and the actual captions yeah. that they use. Like, the last caption that you get before you get to the main action it says another seven years later <laughs> like as if they yeah we know it's a bit far-fetched in these uh prologues here but we're going along with it just like yeah. you are but we get another visual reference to show how unhinged helen has become is that we just see her as an obese crazy cat lady it's an awful sight <laughs> it's one of those scenes that legitimately makes me feel dirty i've got a thing with seeing that many animals inside a room mm. just as untidy as it is i can't help but imagine the smell mm. and it, it always turns me stomach a little bit seeing that scene she's eating all that cream and stuff as well <laughs> and it's, it's like it's cream awful. out of the can yeah and uh we have the ipcris file on the tv it's a weird mix of the ipcris file and meryl streep in dial m for murder yeah exactly yeah. some kind of hitchcockian drama this film has a lot of references to fading star films from the past like uh, sunset boulevard and all about eve and what happened to baby jane it's a spiritual successor to those kinds of films oh but there's one thing we forgot to mention during this scene is that the on the video she's actually watching it's madeline being killed and she just keeps rewinding it over and over again just to see her just get strangled to death yeah the other thing we need to establish as well is the character of ernest was a very high-profile plastic surgeon. And the only reason Madeline has gone for Ernest is because she's already beginning to feel that her looks are fading. Yes. And she's set up right from the beginning as being an incredibly vain character. Wrinkle, wrinkle, little star. Yeah. And this is what she's actually singing when we are first introduced to her. And this is the reason why she's stolen Ernest away from Helen. Yeah, it's just purely for egotistical reasons, for selfish reasons. We flash forward another six months... And we get a scene which intentionally looks like One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's actually one of my favourite scenes in the entire film. Yeah. Because I love that Helen has actually become the bane of all these damaged and mentally ill people's lives. (laughs) They're sick of it as well. Yeah. (laughs) So Helen is actually engaging in group therapy in this scene. And she's being asked, while surrounded by many other damaged individuals, if she would like to talk about anything. And there's only one thing that she would like to talk about. Is Madeline. And everybody erupts into screams. (laughs) (laughs) And it's actually at this point I wrote down, even though the film's called Death Becomes Her, it's not so much a film that's about death, it's more a film that's about obsession. Yeah, I would say that obsession is definitely the crux of the film. Mm. It's obsession with beauty, obsession with youth, obsession with revenge. And obsession with another person. Yes. It's probably a much more appropriate theme to hang all these things on than actual death. Yeah, although Death Becomes There is definitely the better title. Oh, yeah. I always really like that title. Have you heard of Bruce Willis's alternative titles for this film that he suggested at the time? No, but I would very much like to. I think one is My Man Death. Okay. Yeah, they were not very good. I can imagine why they didn't go with them. But yeah, we cut to another seven years later and we now enter the main action of the film yeah this is where the actual story starts we've had all the character setups and all the exposition is laid out for us and now the story can actually begin which is now set in beverly hills in present day 1992 and once again we set up that madeline and ernest are living a loveless marriage and they're living in misery 
and it's all done completely visually. Yes, it is. Um, and there's something else that I do love about this film is that Robert Zemeckis lets the whole film play out in long shots that are always quite imaginative. He lets the action play out in mirrors and he doesn't just let the story play out in front of the camera like so many directors do these days. He lets the camera tell the story. It's an active part of the story. We see Madeline and she's snoring and she's got all these bandages on and you can see that she's just come out of some plastic surgery operation for something yeah and her maid is actually tasked with telling her every single morning that she looks prettier every day or something to that effect and then we cut to bruce willis who is made up to look much older than he actually is but on this occasion no wig is required he's got just enough hair for the role they're now sleeping separately yes although ernest is actually sleeping on the floor in a rumpus room yes with his darts and the first thing he drinks as soon as he wakes up Blood- alcohol. Yeah, Bloody Mary. Yeah. More vodka. <laughs> the film makes out that Ennis has become an alcoholic and he's lost his position as being a premier plastic surgeon and has since become an embalmer. Yeah. His job is to spruce up dead bodies, mainly of celebrities. Yeah, just to make them look pretty for the grave. But I think now is a good point to talk about these characters and perhaps why this film didn't land with general audiences in a way that made it last. And that's because these characters are all essentially very unlikable. You have Madeline, who's set up as being completely vain and obsessed with her own lack of youth throughout the whole film. And she has no redeeming features at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Ernest is a womanizer and a washout. He's a real pathetic character. Yes, he's such a weakling. And Helen is the only character that starts off somewhat sympathetic. And then, because she becomes so unhinged, turns into an unsympathetic character. Yeah, her obsession for revenge turns her into a monster. Yeah. At one point, she actually physically looks like a monster. But I think this is maybe why this film's been forgotten, because Robert Zemeckis has a lot of fun hating these characters and really putting them through the ringer for being utterly unlikable. And that's why the film works. Exactly. But I think, and especially for an American audience, it would have problems because there is no one to root for. I constantly read in script writing books about the difference between writing script for a European audience versus writing scripts for an American audience. And the main difference is the European one emphasizes interesting characters over whether they're likable or not. Yes. And the Americans are definitely going down the likable route or not even just likable where you can actually identify with the characters. Yeah. With these characters, you can't really identify with them, but they're very interesting. I mean, that's the thing. This film is a very mean spirited film, but that's perfectly okay Mm. because it's a very interesting film in the way that Robert Zemeckis deals with these characters. He does put them through the ringer, as I've said before, and the violence goes to complete Looney Tunes level, but we're always on board with it because we don't like these characters. And it's designed as a cautionary tale. Yes. Rather than a a hero's journey or anything like that. And we follow Ernest on his job as a corpse embalmer and there's one of my favourite parts of the film where he has to embalm this film star that's just died, this Fernando character. He's died while making love to a model in his pool. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got this Joker-esque smile stretched across his face. And he's asking his aide how he should present him. 
apparently he's doing it all wrong because he says I'm, I'm gonna give him character and depth it's like you can't give him any character or depth they need to recognize him <laughs> <laughs> i love it it's such a scathing indictment of like hollywood vanity yeah it's just brilliant Perhaps that's why this film has been brushed under the rug. Maybe. Perhaps it cuts just a little too close to home. Yeah. Zemeckis definitely has a more... Even though he's an American himself, seems to have a more observational look at American life. Even down to the look of the 50s and the Back to the Future, it's definitely more of a outsider's look of what the 50s would have looked like in America. Yeah, he's not as emotionally involved with these times mm. as many others would be. He's not capturing it through the eyes of nostalgia. He seems to be looking at it from outside in. I also think that he actually um, doesn't like people all that much. No. And I know that that's an opinion held by several other critics out there that I happen <laughs> to agree with, especially to use Forrest Gump as an example. Yeah, Forrest Gump is a character that continues to profit, and greatly so, at the expense of other people. He, he thrives when others are miserable. <laughs> And here, Death Becomes It is another example of that. It's probably a better example of that. Yeah. And we sort of jump to Madeline's side, and she has obviously become completely obsessed with plastic surgery, and she's in this clinic. Madeline's obsession with plastic surgery has gone completely wild, and she's asking for some invasive operation mm. that she's already had three weeks before. Yeah. And it needs to be something like at least six months before doing it again, <laughs> and she's demanding it be done. And that's when she gets to hear about Isabella Rossellini's character. Yeah, from Mr. Twitchy Eyes. Mr. Twitchy, how am I? I love that little quirk to his character. And every time he stops one eye from twitching, yeah. the other eye starts twitching. It made me uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> to watch. I like at one point that he physically had to hold hold one of his eyes just yeah. to stop it. It looked like one of his eyes was like false. Well, I think that adds to the film that all these characters have a certain artificiality to yeah. them. They're not real. They both get an invite to go to Helen's book launch where they can see that Helen has become this youthful goddess-like character in this red dress. Very much looking like Jessica Rabbit. Yes. <laughs> the red hair, the red dress. I think it's the exact same dress. Mm. Obviously not the same one that Jessica Rabbit wore because that wasn't real. That was out of it, I guess. <laughs> it was real to me, goddammit. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely conjures up those kinds of images. It's that mix of danger and seduction. Yeah, so Helen's youthful and slender, and she's meant to be about 50 years old. Goldie Hawn at the time, I don't think, was anywhere I think she near. was about 43, 45, yes. something like that. She looks great. Yeah. I mean, everybody looks great in this yeah. film, and I think that the makeup as well is fantastic. Well, Bruce Willis doesn't look great. Uh, yeah, except for Bruce Willis, who looks like he's <laughs> only a couple of years off a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> but I really like the makeup on Meryl Streep, because watching this back recently, I actually forgot that she wasn't as old as she looked in these early scenes. No. That actually, she was quite young during this yeah, time. Yeah. She looked really good. Mm. And the makeup effects are really quite convincing. And um, Helen and Ernest, they have like a heart to heart, and she tells him that he's wasting his life and uh, that Madeline has wasted his life. And she does give Madeline the same spiel as well. Yeah. You do get the sense that as an audience member, she is playing both of these people. And that she forgives him, but she can never forgive her. Yes. And we also get the idea that Madeline has a string of younger lovers. Yeah, and this scene um, is immediately followed by a scene in which she actually visits one of her lovers. And is rejected by. And he's too busy making love to somebody who looks much younger. Who has a very slender looking bottom. <laughs> this, and we have to stress that this is a PG film. This is a PG And we do get a naked rear yeah. end of a 
very attractive looking woman there's a lot of near nudity in yeah. this film uh, isabella rossellini who we'll get to later is uh, doesn't really wear any clothes in the film no not really <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be one of those things that i think i'm only going to say once and get absolutely buried for mm-hmm. but when i was a kid of like 11 or 12 years old and obviously i'm at that cusp of puberty <laughs> i remember having this tape on vhs and <laughs> pausing it many times when isabella rossellini was on screen oh just to God. see if i could see her nipples pointing out through any of the jewels in a in a necklace <laughs> in a very elaborate necklace and i uh i think i wore out the tape <laughs> The thing is, as an 11-year-old boy, as a 12-year-old boy, I don't know what I would have done with that information. <laughs> I just knew that they were there somewhere. They were there somewhere, and I yeah. needed to see them. It was like the most perverted Where's Wally <laughs> I've ever played. And I think that's something that most men can identify with. Yes, it was I a- think we've all had one of those videotapes that we wore out as kids. Yeah, it brought new meaning to the phrase Maybe we of can age. post them on, on our Facebook page or our Twitter page. <laughs> Any, any guys, if you had one of those videos that you just kept pausing and wore out, just post the film up on our Twitter page. <laughs> Following being rejected by this younger boyfriend, she decides to consider Liesl's offer. She still has Liesl's business card that she tore up, but she's still got it and she puts it back together again. Uh, again, I think it's a good point to actually talk about the performances in this film, but I actually really love Meryl Streep in this. She chews up as much scenery as she can. She plays it to be very camp, very over-the-top in terms of theatrics, and it definitely benefits the film, especially when it gets much darker later on. It's a really good anchor for yeah, the film yeah. because it balances out all of that violence and all of that bloodshed that comes later and all of that darkness. Yeah, it stops it from becoming too dark. Yeah, and it keeps it firmly rooted in fun. And I was actually quite shocked to learn that she didn't have a good time filming this film no. because it does look like she's having so much fun on the screen. I think the main reason is because... Half the time spent making this film would have been down to all the effects work that was needed to be done. And I don't think she had the patience for it. I think there was many times where she would have to keep still or hit certain marks for Zemeckis and she would get really tired of trying to hit those marks. Yeah, This was in the days before digital tracking and things like that. So everything had to be completely spot on to get it right. And I don't think... Yeah, this was back in the days of Keyframe. So she's not done any films that have been like this since this one. And for any of you special effects junkies that are actually listening to this, we assure you there is more to come on the special effects. Yeah. We actually can't wait to get there. <laughs> I mean, who wears sunglasses in the middle of the night no, I know. as well? Yeah. When she's driving up to Liesl's mansion, she's got full-on sunglasses. There. Well, it's because she caught sight of herself in the mirror and yeah. was completely shocked at just the image of her own face. That I don't think she can bear to look at it anymore. The sunglasses help. And she enters Liesl's mansion and is greeted by male models who look like extras from the Chippendales. I actually said to my wife when we were watching this film that um, when the first Chippendale opened the door, I actually said to her that, oh, Aerosmith must be practicing here. (laughs) (laughs) They have that kind of rock and roll glam rock. Well, it looks like a trapeze artist. Um, uh, Maybe a little. Like a circus troupe as well. I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we get to meet Liesl for the first time, who's not really wearing any clothes on the top half. It's just an elaborate necklace. Yes, an elaborate necklace of gems. Which you... <laughs> and there may be a couple of nipples in there. <laughs> There's some nipples there, in there, there somewhere. Maybe. But I never found them. Yeah. Never found them. No. They're there. I know they're there. 
<laughs> They're all strategically placed jewels. And she looks great in this film as well. Yeah. Later on in the scene when Liesl asks Madeline how old she thinks she is, she says 38, and she goes, ugh. But, actually, <laughs> but in actual fact, Isabella Rossellini was actually 39 when they made this film. Yeah, it's just quite so a it's funny kind of joke. a little in-joke there. Yeah. Because she's meant to be 71 in the film. And she's got that kind of classic 1930s actress look about her as well. And I think that's what the film's going for. It's always concerned with the Hollywood lives and different generations of Hollywood actresses and actors. This does seem like a very elaborate play on that in terms of her dress. She's going on about how Madeline's scared of herself, of the body that she once knew. And it's here that we're actually introduced to the magical side of the film, the dark fantasy elements that come into play in the yeah. film. As this glowing purple slash pink elixir is passed on to Meryl Streep's character, Madeline. And she's told that it will grant her eternal life and eternal beauty, but at the cost that she must maintain her looks and look after her body for the many years to come. She's allowed ten perfect years in the spotlight, and then she must retire or fake her own death. Even so, I don't think ten years are enough for Madeline. No. She would grow bored very quickly. Yeah, it seems a bit of a a bum deal for me, because if you're going to live forever, and then you're only going to be in the spotlight for ten years, and then the rest of that foreverness... You've got to be tucked away. It doesn't sound too great. Yeah, and only to be wheeled out when Madame Liesel throws one of her big parties. That seems like a very hollow existence, but I guess that's what the film's going for. Yeah. She is so obsessed with beauty that that sounds just phenomenal to her ears. And there's a really nice moment where Madeline's asking how much it costs, and Liesel writes something down, and she refuses immediately. And then all she needs to do is kind of give a sample Yes. Of what she's got to look forward to. And she's like, do you check a check? <laughs> There's actually a clip that I want to play from this scene. And my brother wouldn't let me record this podcast without actually making reference to this reaction. And it's when Meryl Streep has actually had her finger pricked by uh, Madame Liesel. Hmm. She gives one of the best overreactions I've ever heard. It's, it's one of my favorite Meryl Streep screams. And we're going to play this <laughs> clip right now. Hold out your hand. Ah! What are you nuts? Watch. There's lots of references to good-looking or highly influential people who have either died young or retired and disappeared from public view. Yes. So you've got your Greta Garbo's, you've yep. got your James Dean's and Jim Morrison's that appear later. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, at this point, we get the Greta Garbo reference with I want to be alone. I want to be alone. I'm sure some of our listeners do know the story, but actually, I want to be alone is one of her final lines in, in her final film. And then she retired from the screen just completely. And uh, although she died an old woman, it still fits the story. Yeah. Uh, because she was never seen of again in a cinematic sense. And all the while, Helen is visiting Ernest again. And this is another PG moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where she's uh, seducing Ernest back into her arms again. Yes, and by just saying words like sex and sexual over sexual, and over again. Sex, this this part sexy. always made me feel very uncomfortable watching it with my parents as a child. Was this your 12-year-old self again? Th- this is... Was yes. this another part that you rewound? <laughs> and actually, Helen is trying to seduce Ernest as a way to try and persuade him to kill his wife to take her out of the picture completely and this is where the film for me gets very hitchcock Uh, this does feel like your dial m for murder 
they are trying to set up the perfect murder and Goldie Hawn's character Helen has had years to think this over and she's come up with a story that's very very credible yeah although completely and utterly fantastical in the way that it's presented they are going to drug Madeline pop her in a car on the edge of a cliff fill her car with about 30 or 40 bottles of rum and vodka yeah douse her body in vodka and simply push the car off a cliff where it will explode immediately on impact yeah and uh, that's their plan in a nutshell yeah and i love how they narrate the scene and then the action takes place exactly how they've described it to the point of just repeating exactly what they've said yeah makes it really funny (laughs) i like that they actually narrate it in the scene as well. Yeah. There's a, there's a part where Goldie Hawn's character actually says the words that the narration are. I do like it. It's a, it's a great little dream sequence. And it's like I say, it's very Hitchcockian, but played for laughs. And she convinces Ernest that in killing her, it would be an act of self-defense because she's killing him. Killing him slowly. Just before that, we cut to Madeline as she's begun her change. We get her face changing. We get her bum getting tighter. And we get her boobs rising. (laughs) And in the midst of all this high-tech special effects, the effect of her boobs rising was done in the most unsophisticated way that you could think of. I don't actually know how. Originally, it was going to be an appliance that was actually mechanically going to lift everything up. Yes. But all it ended up being was one of Meryl Streep's assistants literally lifting her bra straps up (laughs) from behind her back. (laughs) So it's really low-tech. I genuinely thought that there was some kind of mechanism no, that pushing just it someone's up. hands. All oh, right. <laughs> if anybody could have actually seen me while I was talking about that scene, I was actually fondling my own chest. <laughs> I can't, can't help it. I talk with my hands a lot. That's the excuse I'm using. I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> this episode got very sexual very quickly. Yeah. So Madeline comes home and she's able to put on all her old outfits because she's become much more slender and she's being very vain and looking in a mirror. And all that Ernest notices is that her hair has changed. (laughs) Which is the only thing that really hasn't. And he decides to confront her at the top of the staircase. And this is when Ernest transforms from a pathetic weakling into a genuine murderer. Yeah. Well, a would-be murderer, anyway. Does he technically murder Madeline? Because from this scene onwards, she is in fact dead. So does that make him an actual murderer? He does, because she's teetering on the precipice yes he literally just gives her one tap so yes it's that tap that pushes her over the edge she and could have fallen by her own momentum but it's that little tap that he does so he intends to push her just that little bit further yeah and she hits the stairs with this almighty crack of her neck yeah. right in the in the camera and oh. it's it's horrific i watched this scene twice and the second time i had to put my fingers in my ears because the sound of her neck breaking is excruciatingly awful in fact all of the sound effects for any of the bone crunching is yeah it it just makes you just shake inside but yeah he does have time to think about it yeah because he actually reaches out for her to grab her to stop her from falling down the stairs and it's only when she demands that he hurry up about it that he realizes that he hates this woman yeah and that he just pokes her just gives her that little nudge I think he's a murderer. Even though she continues to live in some sense from the scene mm. onwards, he technically still killed this woman because she remains dead for the rest of the film. She's yeah. a zombie. To be fair, she did call him flaccid. This so, is true. Yeah. I love her delivery. I love Meryl Streep in this. The delivery <laughs> of that line is is brilliant. Her tongue just hangs out of her mouth in a very flaccid <laughs> manner. <laughs> 
But one of the things I really like about this death is that it's the only one in the film that isn't played for laughs. And at this point, death in itself is still shocking to us. And when we yeah. see Madeline die, or at least we think that she dies, it's shocking. It's a shocking sight. And it still gives me the heebies to watch it now. Yeah. And it's only after this point when she gets back up again that everything starts going more cartoony. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then death itself becomes a joke. So she's at the bottom of the stairs, completely slumped on the floor. Her legs completely twisted around and her arms completely twisted out of its socket and her head's completely the way around. Yeah. So it's quite a disgusting, horrific sight to see. This is one of the shots that used to haunt me as a child. Yeah. In the same way that watching who framed roger rabbit when the judge gets up after being flattened by the steamroller yeah it scares me in the same way yeah and it still just makes the hair stand up on my neck a little bit because it's all played out in background it does feel like the spiritual successor to that shot not just in terms of its thematic significance but also in terms of technological significance it is yes. the successor because this was done digitally whereas the scene in Who Framed Roger Rabbit was done through stop motion animation so you can see the progression between it's like that Spielberg moment where he has the coat hanger and he did it in 1941 but had to cut it out and then use it in Raiders yes it's like he's going back to that shot revisiting it but making it better this film does strike me as Robert Zemeckis in his prime and really just you can tell how much he's learned making the Back to the Future films the uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit we get the sense that Every film is a learning experience for him, and then death becomes her. He's bringing all those experiences mm. and making just something excellent out of it, utilising all those creative tools that he has. So this is all done as one long shot where Ernest is talking to Helen on the phone saying that he's done it, he's killed her. And she can't believe that he's completely abandoned the plan just immediately. Yeah. That blood rage has taken him instantly. He saw red and killed her. All within a matter of minutes. And the first person he calls is Helen, not the police. Because he, he could say, oh, she just fell down the stairs. It looks very credible in that way. Yeah. But instead, the first person he calls is Helen. She can't believe it. It's it's a strange, strange scene. And because her head's on backwards, she can't walk the right way. Yeah. And slowly she's making her way to Ernest. Yeah, and it's really creepy how she moves towards Ernest. These scenes were really groundbreaking at the time. I mean, we should probably go into the special effects part of this now. This is probably one of the... Yeah, the special effects were achieved <laughs> by Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis, who were known at the time for doing the special effects for the Alien films. But this was the film that won them credibility. Then they won an Oscar for this. They actually won an Oscar, yeah. yeah. And rightly so, because the effects are absolutely stunning. And it just goes to show that people give Woodruff and Gillis a hard time because of some of their work on the Alien films, but nobody quite realises that what they're working to is a director's vision. Yeah. And that director's vision might not always be what they want to do. Mm. And Death Becomes Her shows that they really are masters of their craft when working with the right director. Yeah. It's not always their fault that bad effects make it into some of their films. This shows that they have the talent and they have the creativity. And now they have the Oscar as well. Yeah, one only has to see the prequel to The Thing to see how messed around that work can be. And there's a YouTube channel run by them and it has all of their workshop documentaries on there. And I would recommend any of our listeners that are interested in special effects to take a glance because mm. there are some excellent documentaries on there. 
Yeah. And all this work was combined with the work of ILM under the supervision yes. of Ken Rolston, who was the, wasn't he the supervisor for Return of the Jedi? I think he might have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah all this prosthetic work was combined with a lot of morphing CGI extensions and blue screen face replacements. Yeah, as far as I know, this is some of the earliest face replacements because uh, I was watching it back today and I was actually remarking to my wife how amazing it is as a achievement that it looks as good as it does even now. And it's funny in a way to look at because it's it's the kind of thing that doesn't look quite right because it is a violation of nature. Your head should not be that way around. And because your head should not be that way around, it feels weird looking at it because something moving that has its head twisted around that far yeah. will always look strange. So what they've managed to achieve, especially at the time when there was no proper digital tracking or anything like that, is quite quite something to behold. Yeah, and I think it's going to be taken for granted for anybody that's looking back, yeah. like in terms of general audiences, unfortunately, uh, because it's so easy to achieve now. But again, the film manages to subvert all this horrific imagery by infusing it with a lot of comedy so there's the line where i can see my ass <laughs> <laughs> and he asks, are you okay honey yeah and things like that and uh, there's a horrible scene where she twists her head back around and there's the bones <laughs> sticking through the skin and, and ernest is just he's grasping at explanations he thinks it's a dislocated neck at this point he's, yeah. he's, he's heard of this before <laughs> he's never seen it but he's heard of it yeah and yeah, he takes her to the hospital yep. to see the doctor who's played by Sidney Pollock. Yeah, great director. Great actor as well. Who directed Meryl Streep in Out of Africa. Yes. So that's the connection there. And this scene has uh, one of those special effects that I've always remembered from being a kid. And I know I seem to be talking about this film a lot from the um, standpoint of being like a 10 or 11 year old. But this was really a big film in my life because it really opened the door to the world of special effects for me. Mm. And in this scene, there's a really simple effect that I remember just completely baffling me as a kid. And it was the scene in which the doctor asks her, does it hurt when he pushes her hand back on her wrist? Because although I remember the scene earlier and I knew that there was some trickery going on there, with the wrist gag, I remember asking my mum, how did Meryl Streep do that? <laughs> I genuinely had no idea that it was a mechanical arm. No. I just genuinely thought... That was her hand, and that was just a trick that she could do, that she could dislocate her hand yeah. just for the purpose of this gag. <laughs> and I think that just goes to show how good the effects are in this film. Obviously, now, looking at it, I can completely tell how it was achieved, and it's a really cool little gag. But back then, it baffled my 10-year-old mind. The Doctor establishes that Meryl Streep is effectively dead. She has no pulse <laughs> and is below living temperature. Yep. <laughs> And no sense of pain either, yeah. which comes into play later. Yeah, so he rushes off for a second opinion. This part of the film becomes very nightmarish very quickly. Yeah. We get Ernest rushing around the hospital, and I'm not sure whether you've noticed, but he rushes into the waiting room, and there's two horrific shots of tennis players. Yes. There's one tennis player who has an eye bulging out. And there's a, another tennis player whose knees have been almost completely dismembered. Yeah. I, uh, I don't get it. No, Why? No. Was that a reference from an earlier cut in the film, perhaps? There is a couple of different things like there's that and there's the floating nuns. Yeah, the floating later nuns on. later on, yeah. Mm. I think that's more of just a tone setter. Whereas the thing with the tennis place, I feel like it's a punchline to a gag we haven't yeah, seen. maybe. <laughs> 
and uh, the doctor himself can't take this. He uh, immediately goes into cardiac arrest, which we see immediately after this scene. And um, Ernest finds Madeline in a morgue. She's been moved to a morgue as she's been found dead by some other nurse. Yeah. <laughs> and he actually confronts the nurse. And one of the lines that he says is, he asks her where Madeline's been taken. And she says, oh, she's been taken to the morgue. And he goes, the morgue? She'll be furious. <laughs> She'll be furious. <laughs> I love it. I like the bit where he takes her out of the fridge and starts calling her a burning bush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that that's the only way that he can make sense of the situation, yeah. by actually heightening it to biblical proportions. And it really highlights how much of a pathetic character it is that he takes this idea that it's a miracle and that she's a second coming as a sign, and he immediately becomes infatuated with her again. Yeah, he is a very creepy character, and I think it's important to stress that he is just as unlikable as these other two. He kind of brings all of this on himself. And mm. he gets rightly punished for it. Mm. Although he's the only one that learns from the experience. Yeah, he's by the only the one that's redeemed by the end of the film. Yeah. <laughs> he completely and utterly deserves the fate that he's getting. Mm. So all the while, Helen has no idea what's going on because Ernest just has not been in contact with her whatsoever. She decides to take it upon herself to actually break in to Ernest's mansion. Yeah. To find out just what the fuck's going on. Yeah, there's a couple of like premonition sequences here there's a bit where she's spying on them goes over the wall and she can see that he's getting all this stuff like spray paint and formaldehyde formaldehyde things like that and she almost gets run over by his car yes as well which is a nice little moment madeline is laid naked on top of the pool table and she's being spray painted. She's being spray painted the colour of an umpa lumpa. <laughs> <laughs> it's this horrible garish shade of orange. Yeah. And he knows it's not quite right. But well, he does he does find the right shade as he goes. He does, it? yeah, yeah. But Helen takes it upon herself to confront Ernest yeah. and ask what the hell's going on. She actually thinks that he's been having his way with her corpse. Yeah. Which again, this is a PG film. <laughs> PG film. PG kids. family film. Yeah. <laughs> Bring grandma. madeline comes down the stairs and we get a little reference to frankenstein oh do we what's the line well helen goes it's alive oh of course yeah Yeah. i completely forgot about that Mm. they have a little standoff yes and she goes and gets a gun (laughs) and bruce willis gives the best double take i've ever seen in a film (laughs) when he notices that there's a gun missing from his gun cabinet just swinging off the... Yeah. The other guns are swinging in the rack, aren't they? Yeah. And also, it's fair to point out at this point, Bruce Willis provides the film with its best screams. Mm. He gives these kind of Ned Flanders-type ear pierces that are just great. It really is if Bruce Willis is playing Ned Flanders yeah. in, in a live-action film. It, it is, actually. He suits that, <laughs> suits that look right down to a T. Yeah, at the end of this standoff, Madeline shoots Helen at point-blank range straight through her stomach and she goes flying into the outside pool. It's very wily Coyote. Yeah. But actually, it's followed by an incredible amount of bloodshed. We see her body in the pool just emptying all of her blood. <laughs> and it's quite horrific. PG for kids. PG. Yeah. And there's some great lines as well in the aftermath of this where Bruce Willis is going, she's dead! And Madeline's <laughs> going, these are the moments that make life worth living. <laughs> I love how kind of deliciously evil she is as a character. 
I love that she's essentially this boogeyman. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what she turns into, she no longer cares about the death penalty because there's nothing that they can do to her. No, because she blackmails Ernest into burying her in the Death Valley. Yeah, because she could always just play dead. Yeah. <laughs> no one can play dead like me. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in extreme black comedy territory here. Yeah, it goes very dark. And all while they're talking about burying Helen, she gets up and all this water comes out through the hole in her stomach. Oh, it's a great gag as well. Yeah. It really is. And some great special effects. Yeah, this is where the special effects really come into their own. Mm. And Robert Zemeckis really gets to stretch his legs and explore uh, new groundbreaking technologies. And it's revealed that Helen has also taken this potion, but much earlier. In fact, on the exact date of the present in Back to the Future, which is October the 26th, <laughs> 1985. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah I think you're bang on there. Yeah. So she gets up and she's going, that's totally uncalled for. Yeah, and uh, so begins a very Looney Tunes-esque fight. Oh, but first we get Bruce Willis's declaration that it's another miracle, <laughs> which they immediately dismiss. And there's lots of uh, wordplay going on here where she's saying, I can see right through you, <laughs> yeah. and things like that. It gets really corny and really camp, but I think that's exactly what the film needs. Yeah, it's all in because its favour. Because it's so dark. Yeah. It's so mean and dark and... So violent and morbid. Yeah, yeah exactly. It you needs... need that levity. Exactly. It's uh, Wiley Coyote versus Roadrunner if they were yeah. both playing Wiley Coyote. <laughs> <laughs> and they could actually kill each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, Helen hits Madeline on the head with a shovel and bends her head right off. Oh, it's it's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. And she's making these gurgling noises because yeah. her windpipe has been completely crushed. Yeah, and she's going, damn, I just fixed this. <laughs> And I love that all of the damages that they inflict on each other last. Yeah. So later on in the film, she can't actually keep her head upright. No. Because it keeps on just flopping down because her neck has been completely destroyed. Yeah. And we get an idea of what those dangers were that Madame Liesel was mm. hinting to earlier on in the film. That their bodies could literally fall apart if they allowed it to happen. And this is where all the special effects are at their most concentrated Yes. As well, because we get many in quick succession. We get all the stuff with the hole through the, the stomach, and we get the stuff where she chucks a spear through her yes. hole, <laughs> and then she sits down on the settee where it's landed, and it goes straight through her again. <laughs> I and love we that get guy. the bit where Meryl Streep stretches her head out, and then well, puts it back in place. She gets her head smashed within her chest. Yeah. And all we can see is her eyes po- poking <laughs> out of this horrible flap of skin. Yeah. And she has to literally pull her head out of her chest. Yeah. I've always loved that gag. Yeah. But the real punchline after all of this horrific fighting is that they finally make amends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they know that they can't get anywhere with yeah. it. Yeah. There's always been one gag that even now I can't quite understand how they did it. And it's probably the simplest. And there's a section of this scene where they're fighting that we see it played out on the shadows yeah. across the floor. And in the shadows, we can see the hole in Goldie Hawn's stomach. Mm. How did they do that? Because it really has a depth to it. And at first, I was thinking, oh, perhaps there's a mirror there to bounce a light. She's got a mirror on her stomach, and she's bouncing light mm. on it. But I thought that would be too temperamental. Wouldn't get quite the same effect. Because it's clearly been achieved in camera. And I was thinking, perhaps there's a light source then that matches the same temperature of the room. Mm. But I don't actually know how they did it. That's the kind of thing I like about these kinds of films, though, because these days you'd know it would just be a CGI thing. Well, you would sit there and you go, oh, computers did it. Yeah. That's it. Whereas 
In this era, there's still a sense of mystery about which technique they would have used. It's true movie magic. Yeah. And I have an idea that whatever they did with this film, although probably a little bit more constrictive, mm. was far less costly than if anybody was to do it now with CGI. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And uh, Ernest decides that he's leaving. And they were like, what? Because yeah. basically they've just been fighting over him the entire time and he decides that he wants out now. And they realise that they can't actually go on without him because they need him to touch up their skin whenever it begins to peel off or yeah. fade. There's something else in this scene as well. Goldie Horn's contact lenses are fantastic. She yeah. looks really deathly ill. <laughs> <laughs> she gives her this kind of piercing gaze where all we can see is the blacks of her eyes. They need him more than he needs them now because there's a little moment where her spray paint chips off yeah once he gives her the makeovers that they're asking for and they realize that it's not gonna last mm. that they will need him around yeah. forever and they plan for him to take the potion from Liesel. yes so that he, he can literally be around forever to maintain them so they decide to create a cocktail of whiskey and sleeping pills to knock him out so that they can get him to madame Liesel's mm. house and it's around that point that he decides that He's going to quit drinking, as people do in these films. He's as got, all of his drinks yeah. starts to spill out of his glass <laughs> yeah. as he spins around. As he's talking in a very elaborate way, his arms are moving and his whiskey's flying everywhere. What a waste. <laughs> Instead, they just resort to the um, age-old technique of bashing him over the head with something heavy. Yeah. And they smash a couple of aces on his skull. I think it's just, again, taking the piss out of people's elaborate plans and <laughs> yeah. then... The simpler thing usually works. Well, again, it's their idea is very Hitchcock, and that's not what happens. It's yeah. this yeah, elaborate Hitchcockian plan. We're going to drug his drink, and then we're going to put him into the car and do that. You know, it never comes to pass. No. I think this is what I like about this film, is it's always setting up a Hitchcock film that never takes place. No. <laughs> never actually happens. Ernest gets brought before Liesel in the pool area, where we get a lot of body double action going on. Yep. <laughs> yeah <laughs> pg film guys it's a pg film and it's uh yeah some full-on nudity here yeah it's a, uh, it's remarkable we must mention that the whole film is balanced out in that bruce willis is surrounded by half-naked men pretty yeah. much the entirety of the time <laughs> from here on out now there's a line that i love here where bruce willis goes my god and she goes thank you <laughs> <laughs> and she tries to persuade him to take this elixir she goes along the argument that he gave people their youth back and he wasted his life. Yeah. So now it's his chance to have have it back. Yeah, and forever. And it's that forever part that really stops him from taking it. It's yeah. on his lips and when yeah. he realises that forever means forever. Yeah, and he goes, and then what? What if I get bored? <laughs> what if I get injured? What, what if everyone around me grows old? I love that that is first thing to go to is what if I get bored? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It reminded me of um, an American werewolf in London where um, Jack is visited by his dead friend in, yeah. in hospital and the first thing his dead friend says to him is, I don't like being dead. It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of John Landis influence in this yeah, film as well. Yeah, there is. There is. a twisted g- sense of humour. Again, I think it's just that they share like a very dark sense of humour. Yeah. Yeah, it's very strange. It's like the camera movement of Spielberg and the dark sense of humour of John Landis mm. mixed together. It's Twilight Zone all over again. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. This film was originally intended to be a sequel to Tales from the Crypt from 1989. It was going to be a actual sequel to it. Oh, right. 
Well, that actually makes sense because when you watch the trailer, like I did just before this um, episode was due to be recorded, the trailer is actually scored to the Tales from the Crypt theme. Yeah. And it kind of suits the footage really well. The whole film has a Twilight Zone-esque feel about it, which does play back into the whole Spielberg thing as well because Twilight Zone the movie. Because it's a cautionary tale, it feels like an extended episode of the Twilight Zone. You could almost have the do-do-do-do-do-do-do at the start. Yeah. I can see it. I really can. Mm. So Ernest refuses and escapes, and we come across this huge party that she's holding for all of her club. Yeah, and this is where we get to see all of the stars of yesteryear. And whilst Ernest is trying to escape, the audience is addressed by Mr. Twitchy Eyes again. <laughs> who's just about managed to get his Twitch on the control. Yeah, yeah. Almost. Yeah, he's addressing all the crowd, which consists of like Marilyn Monroe... Elvis Andy, Presley. Yeah, Andy Warhol. Oh, Andy Warhol's there, yeah. yeah. He's celebrating how long we've all been together. Mm. And then also just talking about all these naughty people who've faked their death but have yeah. continued to resurge. And all eyes go to Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing that I actually think that they missed as an opportunity in mm. this scene. And the whole idea is that Madeline is a failing actress or a faded actress. Yeah. Surely she would be surrounded by people of the previous generation of actors and actresses that have faded themselves yeah why isn't anybody there's people that she recognizes or knows people mm. that have disappeared from her life and i guess the film has really nothing to offer in that regard because it's not really commenting on that but i always thought you see that she's got an andy warhol like picture of herself in a mansion and andy warhol's there so clearly that's somebody that she's met in her life yeah. Why does it never play on that? Yeah, it doesn't get too preoccupied with that part of it, does no, it? It's, no, no, it kind defi- of moves on. Yeah, it's definitely more just window dressing. Yes. It's played for laughs. Yeah. I mean, they may have done, but maybe they cut it all out for time. That's what I have to think, because I know that this film was reshot and re-edited when it tested quite poorly, and a lot of the edits were actually focused on the final act of the film, so it's, we're right in that now. Yeah. And I imagine that's may have been actually taken out because the pace of the ending is very frenetic it's breakneck yeah they're about to seal the room and Ernest just gets away in time yeah in a lift and he's chased down a corridor by two Dobermans it's Dobermans yeah. Dobermans yeah he's chased right up to the rooftop by these two Dobermans screaming as he goes and that Ned Flanders way yeah <laughs> and he's pretty much reached the point of no return he's right on the top of this building <laughs> He looks across the top of the building, which is this epic, like, gothic castle. And there's a sign that says, exit. Yeah. I love that there's a sign that says, exit <laughs> up there. Why would there be? Nobody's going to be up there unless they need to be up there. <laughs> yeah. This gothic mansion is straight out of Tim Burton. Yeah, it really is. It's like a Tim Burton matchup. And obviously the exit has to be just out of reach. Yeah. And the only way of getting there is by crawling across the rooftop. That's teetering right over a phenomenal drop. And uh, he slips and is yes. hanging by his braces yeah. rather comically. <laughs> and it's then that we're joined by Helen and Madeline once again, yeah. who have actually followed him straight up to the roof. And they tempt him to drink the potion. Which he's still got in his pocket. Yeah, in order to save his life, but only so that he can tend to their needs. Yeah. They still need him more than he needs them. And this is where the film actually turns his character around to yeah. being somewhat sympathetic. And this is why he gets that second chance is because... He drops the potion. He doesn't take it. He would rather die and accept death than become a ghoul like them. Mm. And there's a question that I've got to ask, because later on we find out that he lived a rather great life mm. following this series of events. Yeah. Does he deserve it? 
Because at the end of the day, he's still someone that was so weak that they would kill their wife rather than leave them. And I'm not quite sure he deserves a second chance. Yeah. I think if you're taking it realistically, then no. Yeah. But in the context of the film, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the only character who does turn his life around. He's the only character that has an arc that ends on a positive note. Mm. I think I agree with you. I think in the context of the film itself and the tone it sets and the kind of silliness it deals with, then yeah, okay, it's a dark fantasy film. So yeah, perhaps we can grant him that. Yeah. In reality, no, he's still a murderous swine. (laughs) (laughs) He seemingly falls to his death, but actually lands in the pool where Jim Morrison is about to get on with some girls. So he's a bit annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) But he does say it did look cool. Yeah. Yeah, that guy, (laughs) he's hardcore. (laughs) So the last we really see of Ernest is him limping out of the mansion, jumping into James Dean's car, which I think is the spider. Yes. And um, driving away into the sunset. (laughs) Yeah. Leaving Madeline and Helen to uh, pick up all the pieces, really. Uh, They are tasked with actually finding him, which is something that they never do, as we soon find out. And they basically have to take care of each other now because they've been banished from the group. And they don't have any skills in terms of makeup. Nope. They lack the kind of finesse that Ernest has with a paintbrush. (laughs) So so when we cut to 35 years later... 37 years later. Oh, 37 years later. Oh, sorry, I almost took a couple of years off his life. (laughs) We are, in fact, at Ernest's funeral. And this scene was actually reshot for this version of the film. Mm. When it originally tested with audiences and got a negative response, it had a completely different ending. Yeah, the original ending has him hiking with his wife, who is another large subplot that has been completely removed from the film. Yeah, I think she was played by Tracy Ullman. Yeah. And if you watch the trailer for the film, you can see that she was actually a significant part of this film in production, and yet there's not a trace of her in the final film. And I think it's one of those things where her part obviously wasn't that missed, because unless you knew about it, you wouldn't think that she was even in this film. No, I didn't even know this film had problems in the editing suite, because the final film itself is so strong. Yeah. I don't miss her as a character. I have no idea what kind of role that she would fit, or what space she would occupy in the Mm. film. I think she was meant to be a possible way out for him. Yes. It doesn't need that. It needs to be his own way out. Yeah. That's why these characters need to to save themselves. Yeah. That's their only way out. Yeah. But it had him hiking, making the most of his life. Kind of what they're talking about in the funeral scene. But the main problem is more down to the the two women. They don't get a proper send-off. All that happens is they're just bored of life oh, right. at this point. And they've been going around. I think there's a line about Paris. I was like, oh, we've been there already. So they're kind of bored with their own existence at this point. And it it's, sounds a bit it's, dross. It's a bit wishy-washy, yeah. Yeah. Because the actual send-off that they get in this version of the film is so much stronger. Mm. Well, it at least sounds so much stronger because it ends on a great note, on a great gag, which I guess we'll get to in just a moment. Mm. So we are, in fact, at Ernest's funeral. And it's and he's being eulogised. Yeah, and it's being attended by a whole host of different people from different cultures whose lives he has affected in very positive ways. He's lived a life of positivity after this. And we also see that there are two shadowy figures on the back road that can't help but cackle. And that is Madeline and Helen, 38 yeah. years later and looking quite horrific. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I think they probably would have done if this was the original part of the film, and I imagine this is because of the reshoots and the time that they had, it would have been better to have had the whole 
church completely full. Yes. Yeah. And imagine they probably want to get the separation between the two figures at the back and then the group at the front. But even so, it doesn't feel like it's affected that many people's lives. It would have been funnier if literally the whole thing had been completely full. Yeah. Yeah. Like he had become an actual figure. Yeah. Like a figurehead for positivity. Yeah. That he had affected perhaps hundreds of people's lives. But at the same time, I was going to say that perhaps he's tried to live in hiding from... Yeah, like a more modest life. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the vicar who hits the nail on the head that Ernest has found the secret to eternal youth, which is through his friends and his children, and through that he will live forever. And it's kind of just a fitting end to him, and also as a I told you so to the the two ladies in the back. Yeah, I love that Madeline's response is blah, blah, blah. blah. (laughs) Almost that she knows it's true, but she's just going to defy it anyway. So they walk out into the high sunlight. They can't even walk properly no. because they've not taken care of themselves whatsoever. All uh, of their bits they're don't so seem to... They're so grotesque looking. They're almost yeah. like melting. <laughs> and even their limbs don't seem to fit properly. Yeah. But when we do get to see their faces in the high sunlight, oh my gosh, it's, it's grotesque. Yeah. <laughs> and they're complaining about some spray paint that they've uh, left behind, but it's actually on the step. And it's that what they slip on. And it's a nice little callback to the stairs from earlier. Yeah. The falling down the stairs, we get the same thing plays out again. Where well, there's a whole theme of stairs. I mean, even at the beginning of the film, when we go to the Sweet Bird of Youth musical, she is walking down the stairs. That is the first shot of we course, get of yeah. Madeline. See, to say this is a reshoot, it actually fits the film perfectly. Oh, it it perfectly. feels like it's been the end of the film the whole time. Mm. And it's probably one of the bits that gets played the most in terms of people's remembering you know classic scenes from this film because we do get to play out that scene again where only this time it's helen that's just um edging on the precipice of falling down the stairs she needs madeline to reach out and grab her but instead madeline decides not to and helen's not going to take that no (laughs) so she grabs hold of madeline and both of them go toppling down Mm. the stairs just shattering into pieces like two different mannequins yeah like they're made of stone yeah (laughs) you could have almost give it the pottery smash sound effect that everybody uses even the spinning head sound effect sounds a little bit like pottery it does yeah yeah (laughs) and we see them just in complete pieces on the floor still very much alive still very much able to talk to each other and the last line that we hear in the film is helen asking do you remember where we parked the car? <laughs> and I do really love that special effect gag. It's absolutely fantastic. I don't quite know how they managed to achieve it, even now, because it looks great. I know there's going to be some digital face replacement, but it actually looks quite seamless. Yeah, I'm thinking, is it one of those things where it's actually a false set and they filmed it upside, upside down, down and it's yeah. a blue screen? They've got blue screen from their neck up from their neck down sorry and they're basically just shooting it upside down and she's on like some kind of rotation yeah and it's just really good lighting to make it look like yeah it's outside. i think I'm so thinking that maybe yeah you're thinking right we've we've solved it yeah sherlock is on the case yeah as a final note as well talking about the main body of the film as we've been praising bruce willis so much may he rest in peace this is actually not his role no this it wasn't no. originally intended for him he was a last minute replacement for Kevin Klein. I can't imagine a film working as well as it does with Kevin Klein in the role. I no. love, I love Kevin I, Klein. I love Kevin Klein. I yeah. think he's a great actor, yeah, yeah. especially Fish Called Wanda. Mm. But I think that Bruce Willis plays pathetic so well in this film. Yeah, and he gives it. He, his he all. does now anyway. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's life imitating art. Yeah, I just can't imagine it any other way. And I like the idea of 
juxtaposing his image as he was seen at the time because during the early 90s, Bruce Willis was a huge action star a la Stallone and Schwarzenegger because of the diehards and other films that he was in around that time. So having him in this role is a complete about turn and very unexpected. I actually think the strange thing is that Bruce Willis got noticed as an action star. Because I love Die Hard. Die Hard's a great oh, film. Yeah, and yeah. He's, he's brilliant as the everyman action hero. But yeah, but, in actuality, this is more him going back to his roots. Exactly. Like moonlighting. Exactly. He's always had an adept hand at comedy. and Well, had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that nobody wants to push him in that way anymore. Mm. And all anybody wants him to do is repeat his former life as an action star, yeah. even on a direct-to-DVD basis, which is such a shame yeah. because nobody gives him anything that he can really get his teeth into anymore as an actor because that's what he needs to be doing now. Yeah, I think the only director that's given him that has been Wes Anderson. Yes, yeah, definitely. In uh, Moonrise Kingdom. And I will say there is another director, another rather recent film, that gives him more to do than many other just basic action films do. And it has to be Ryan Johnson's Looper. Yes, yeah. Uh, that was probably the last film that I saw in which he was really trying. Going back to life imitating art, it's almost as if he's become bored of life. Yeah, I think he's just become bored of what people want to see him in. And he needs to make the change. And people will follow. Because it is really sad what he's become, really. It is. He's become quite jaded. And he's uh, not happy with the system anymore, but he's happy to cash the checks. Which is the sad thing, I think. Yeah. Okay, on that sad note, (laughs) (laughs) we've talked about Death Becomes Her as a film, but I think now it's time for us to really assess the stats and facts to just see if there's anything in the box office and critical reception to tell us why this film has been forgotten. Yeah, because this is the thing that really surprised me. Having not known much about the film performance-wise and critical-wise, it really surprised me uh, at the reception that it actually got. Yes, because... Again, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I thought this completely bombed. And actually, it was a minor success. I was actually the opposite. I thought this film was a big hit. I was surprised because I thought this film was one of those films that was fairly well respected. At the time, I thought it was a big deal. Yeah. But how quickly it fell from the public eye mm. and simply nobody's talked about it since. I thought, oh, well, this is surely a film that must have bombed. Mm. That really must have bombed out. And actually, it was a modest success yeah. on a budget of $55 million. It actually went on to gross worldwide, $149 million. Mm. And it opened to first place in July 1992 with $12 million. It was up against Honey, I Blew Up the Kids, yep. which was in its second weekend, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> which was in its first weekend. Yeah. And Buffy the Vamp- Vampire Slayer. Swanson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, another Christy Swanson film. Yeah. That was the Buffy the Vampire that absolutely bombed. We could have covered that as a best forgotten movie, actually. Mm. That mm. could be another potential film. We seem to be pulling up a lot of potential mm. films in this yeah. section of the uh, podcast. So although I was quite surprised by how well the film did financially, I was otherwise quite shocked to see how badly it fared critically. Yeah, that was the thing I was most surprised at. I at least thought that maybe this is one of those films that, yeah, it might have faded from the public eye, but at least it was well regarded. no it really was not this film has a average critic rating on rotten tomatoes of 43 percent oh that is bad and it has an average score of 5.2 out of 10 see that's really low that is really low this was a groundbreaking film and a great film and it just hasn't got the kudos it deserves why is that the only thing i can think of is that just people haven't warmed to it just haven't got on board with what it's trying to do 
maybe people wanted something more likable in terms of characters mm. from a Robert Zemeckis film. Yeah. He's just come off the back of Back to the Future Part 3, and this film couldn't be more different than yeah. that. Yeah, he's had that triple whammy with the Back to the Future trilogy, Roger Rabbit, and Romancing the Stone. And doing the film like this after those three properties yeah, is kind of a, a, a massive contrast. That's it. I would say that Roger Rabbit actually shares a darkness it with does. Death yeah. Becomes Her, but it's still got Roger Rabbit at its core, who kids love, adults love. He's that wacky character that just warms to everybody. Yeah. And yet this film doesn't have that character, and I think that's why. And I feel it's down to that mismarketing, because, yeah, Roger Rabbit is a film that everybody can enjoy, and they've tried to make this film into a family film when really it isn't. It's no. definitely for teenagers and adults. It's not for kids at all. It is really a twisted Hitchcockian dark fantasy with some real horrific elements. And it's only right that these characters should be as unlikable as they are. Yeah, and Empire gave it 3 out of 5. And there's a little quote I've got from here from that review. So it says, Both leading ladies display great willingness to send up themselves and Hollywood. And Willis's quiet nervous breakdown showcases his previously unguessed at comic skills, which is technically not true. Yeah. But it's the pitch black comedy and celebrity satire that make this so enjoyable. It reads like a four out of five. Yeah, it's far too positive as a review to be yeah. three out of five. I almost feel like it's just following the trend. Mm, maybe. It's a good review. I I, yeah. I agree with everything he's saying. I just don't agree with the score. No, just like the score doesn't match the review. Yeah. And the IMDb rating is 6.4 out of 10, which I'd say is still low, but obviously more fairer than the Rotten Tomatoes score. Yeah, I'd say this deserves to be rated somewhere between 7 and 8, and yeah. maybe even round 8. Yeah, I do think it deserves that, because it. I feel it gets pretty much all the elements right. And this is a really tricky subject matter to pull off and get it right, and I do feel that they do, on the whole, get everything spot on. I mean, we've often talked about films that are tonally inconsistent. Mm. And you can't say that about Death Becomes nope. Her. And in somebody else's hands, it completely would be. Oh, the yeah. dark elements and the comedy wouldn't mash together. It would be one thing and then the other, and yeah. then one thing and then the other. With Robert Zemeckis' direction, it's all of those things all of the time. Mm. Yeah, I feel like in lesser hands, the dark elements would overwhelm the comedic elements. I think so. So, I guess we're coming towards the end of the episode, yeah. and I've got a couple of questions for you, mm-hmm. as per usual. Are you any closer to understanding why Death Becomes Her has been forgotten? I think the only thing is down to the subject matter, which is always a tricky one for people to swallow, which is the subject of death. The satirisation of Hollywood, which maybe Hollywood themselves wouldn't have liked too much. Yeah. And also, just in general, I don't feel American films that satire American life, that maybe tell some home truths, they don't generally tend to go down that well. No, people like to brush them under the carpet and pretend that they didn't happen. And uh, just going down that likability route, because a lot of the characters are quite despicable and there's no one for an audience to really latch onto, I feel that's maybe another thing that critics might not have liked at the time. Yeah, I have one more thing to add to that because I agree with everything that you've just said. And it's that perhaps the special effects have become a little bit too commonplace these days that people take for granted how hard they were to achieve back then and how much hard work went into making this film. Just in terms of general audiences, that is. Not in terms of the special effects officiados out there. Perhaps it's taken for granted just what a groundbreaking film it was. In a way, I can almost see is the opposite way around, as if the critics were all they were seeing were the special effects yeah, and weren't paying attention enough to the actual story and the characters that were at play. 
and they were just focusing on what was groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Okay, so one last question. Mm-hmm. Is Death Becomes Her one of the best forgotten films or should it be best forgotten? I think I know the answer yeah, to this one already. I think it's definitely going to have to be one of the best of the forgotten because it is ridiculously inventive and it takes a subject matter that is intrinsically tricky and makes something great out of it. Yeah, I have really nothing more to add about this film. I think it's creative, inventive, imaginative and wickedly dark mm. and it all comes together in the right way the performances are excellent i've spoke about all of this there is no reason why this shouldn't be regarded as one of the best forgotten films mm. it really is one of the highlights in robert zemeckis's career mm. and that's a feat inside itself and i think it's just in the context of his career it being in between back to the future three and forrest gump that it is for some weird reason looked at as a thorn between two roses yeah, and mm. it's probably an apt description because this film is sharp and <laughs> darkly sharp. Yeah. it's um, It will hurt you if you yeah. let it. <laughs> Whereas the films either side of it are a little bit more wholesome. Yeah, a little bit more family-friendly, mm. regardless of what the rating is on the box for this one. Yeah. Okay, oh. and that's all we have time for on today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next week when we'll be actually breaking away from the norm. We won't be covering a film. It will actually be a mini-episode, and I'm going to be watching the three-hour-long cut of Dune and seeing if it's worth a second chance. (laughs) Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Mm. I do assure you it'll be business as normal after that. So please join us next week for a mini episode of Best Forgotten Movies. So it's bye from me, and it's a guten tag from Andy. Guten tag. (laughs) Thanks for listening.